All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Um, this, is a, this is a verse that we um, think we know well. Um, this is a verse that we avoid. <laughs> this is a verse that sometimes can leave us feeling pretty beat up and pretty confronted. And I know that some of you are worried because it's now in my hands to preach it to you. And uh, what I do want you to know is that, you know, as, I've, as I prayed about this entire series, as we, we were thinking through the necessity to, to preach on the Abrahamic covenant and how important that is to our understanding of the fullness of the gospel, the thing that the, the Lord said again and again and again is, is don't beat the people up. Again and again, he said, don't, don't make this about what they're not doing. Make this more about what I have done because I am the covenant maker. I am the covenant keeper. Matthew 28 is no, no less about that than any other verse. In fact, it is as much about that as any verse in the Bible. And so often we get the cart before the horse and we wind up feeling defeated, which is what Satan wants for God's people. We wind up feeling beat up. We, we push away from it. We don't want to even hear from it because we have heard it uh, either wrongly or we've let Satan twist it in our ears and say, did God really say? So there is a command here. There is an imperative that we must address, but not before we've addressed the other key factors that make the imperative possible among fragile and broken human beings. Amen? So as we step into this text, let's be careful. The other thing that I think a mistake that we make with a text like this, and, and we can't help it, we're, we're radical individualists here in the West, is we make it all about us. So how many of you think you actually have the capability to bring the gospel to an entire, I don't know, city? How about country? How about continent? No, individualistically, you're not gifted to do that. No one person is. If you think about it, even Paul, for all that he did, all the churches that he set up, what did he have to do in each and every town? Set up elders. He had to depend on other people, hence the letters to Titus and Timothy. Uh, he also depended on um, uh, John Mark. He depended on Sylvanus. He depended on lots of people. So it wasn't just Paul who planted these churches and did these things. It was a lot of other people who were involved using their gifts, using the abilities that God had given them. So I want us to be careful that you not try to bear the brunt of this by yourself. Because if you do, you will fall. You can't carry this. Which is why Christ is in union with you, which is why the Spirit is in you, and he calls us together corporately. And so my hope is that by the end of this, when we go to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we will do so as a people greatly encouraged by the Great Commission and encouraged in how the Great Commission is actually at play in our midst. So, uh, let me ask you a question before we start. This is a question I've asked before. It's one that bears repeating. What most affects your obedience to the commands of the Lord? That is a fundamental ground level question that we need to wrestle with. Because if it's fear in the worst possible sense of the word, right? Like you're afraid of God as the tyrannical Father constantly with belt in hand can't wait for you to mess up so he can, he can practice his swing, right, beating on you, is that good motivation for obedience? Is that biblical motivation for obedience? No, it is not. What ought be our motivation for obedience? What God has done. 
What God has already accomplished in and through his covenant promises, what God has accomplished in Christ alone, by faith alone, through his grace alone, we say those things not just to say them because they sound right. We say them because they're true, and they are truly what strengthen and nourish us. Amen? If there's any other motivation for your obedience than what God alone has done, you will struggle and you will find yourself, as Hebrews would say, tacking slightly off course only to find yourself way off course by the time you get to your destination. So it is imperative for us this morning that we keep what we're talking about rightly located, that we continually cause ourselves to return to the mercies of God, which are new every morning. Why do you think they need to be new every morning? Why do you think he just tell us one time, like most of us, with our wives, hey, I told you I loved you like back in 19, I don't know, 98. It hadn't changed. I hadn't informed you any different. No, the Lord is better than us. He wants us to know every single day with every ray of sunshine, every breeze that blows, every blessing you receive, every good thing, every riven thing that you would know he loves you. That's why he says it so many times. That's why we must preach it every single week. That's why we don't, we, we, we don't try to move on to better things. There is no moving on to anything better than the love of God. The lo longer I go, the older I get, the more convinced I am of that fact. And so what, what has to motivate us more than anything is his covenant keeping, his covenant promises. Listen to what Frederick Dale Bruner says about this. He's a New Testament scholar. He says, Jesus' great commission extends the intention and is the final form of the Abrahamic promise. Thus, the end of our Gospel of Matthew connects with the beginning of our Bible. What a great statement, and that's much of what we've been trying to communicate. And, and I know you saw that last week from Galatians 3 when Josh Irby so beautifully shared the Gospel with us from Paul's letter to the Galatians. And so this is the fundamental connecting thing, the mission of God, the desire of God for every tongue, tribe, and nation to be represented before him. What a beautiful thing, and his grace is so much greater than ours. For those of you who struggle so often with this idea of predestination, can I, can I, can I challenge you for one second? You practice double predestination all the time. You know how? Because you don't share the gospel with every person you meet. You choose who's in and who's out. We do it. I do it. We all practice it. But here's the thing about God. His predestination is very different than that. His predestination makes it possible for those who had no shot, Ephesians 1. You ought to read it. It's a great chapter. It says, you who had nothing, no pedigree, no law, no option, period, to be saved, I, from before the foundation of the world, have predestined you for life. Now, does that answer every single question? No, I'm not dumb. But it's like we've said before, the sovereignty of God is both the problem and the only answer to the question. If you untether yourself from God's all-powerfulness, and if you want to live in a universe where Satan has equal power and he can destroy you, okay, let me know how it turns out. I prefer to live in a universe where maybe all the questions aren't answered this side of heaven. However, the most important ones have been handed down. The promise keeper, the promise maker is God, and he is good. So, 
that is the framework for where we step into this. Remember, this actually connects back into our Advent series. As we read from Matthew 1, remember that, that initial statement in the genealogy, he is the son of David and the son of Abraham. And Matthew unpacks those two ideas over the whole of its 28 chapters with this being the culmination. We will see in this great commission passage that Christ is both son of David in the fullest sense of that word, and he is the son of Abraham in the fullest sense of that word. So don't forget what we read. Remember how in those genealogies, who was included? People you would pick, right? You'd pick Tamar. Why? Because she slept with her stepdad or father-in-law. and uh, You'd pick Rahab, right? Because she lied for you and she was a prostitute. She was a Canaanite. You'd pick Bathsheba, wouldn't you? She slept with the king and first son died as a result of that judgment. Kingdom was blown in two. Or would you pick any of those sorry old kings who all proved to be worthless? Even the good ones couldn't make it last, if you remember. Or how about that group in the genealogy who we have no earthly idea who they are? They're nameless in history. See, we wouldn't have picked those people either, but God does. And that needs to move us. That needs to have an impact on us as we think about the Great Commission. Amen? All right, let's step into the text. We'll begin with the first two verses. We're in Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. All right, so in, previously in Matthew, in 26, 32, 28, 7, and 28, 10, the disciples have been told, hey, I am going before you to Galilee. What's he talking about? What happens before this? Well, if you remember in Gethsemane, he's arrested. What do the disciples do? They run. They run for their lives because the one that they thought was the Messiah is now in custody. And they, they live on the periphery. And if you remember, Peter kind of crept along just out of eyesight. And when they did discover who he was, what did he do? Jesus is my Lord. You remember, right? Isn't that what he said? No, three times over he said, I don't know him. In fact, I want to make sure that you know that I don't know him by my language. He got rather salty. If you remember when Jesus was crucified, the shepherd had been struck. And what happened to the sheep? They were scattered. They were hiding in an upper room the first time he comes to them because they don't know what to do. They don't know what to believe now. The Lord has been killed. And then he shows up and you even have that beautiful moment with Thomas who says, listen, unless I can touch the nail-scarred hands, I'm not fixing to lose my life for this. And Jesus in great grace offers them to him. And so they've been told, go on to Galilee, I'll meet you there in the resurrection. And so Jesus meets them exactly where he said he would meet them and notice their response. Some worshiped, some doubted. Now, it's hard to know exactly what is meant by they doubted because it doesn't exactly tell us now, does it? Now, some have maybe said, well, could it be that they doubted his resurrection? No, this is the third time they're seeing him. I mean, he's, he's, he's physical, they get that part. But what I would, I would posit that they doubted is the same way in which Abram in Genesis 17 probably felt when God approached him. Remember Genesis 16, Abram had left the covenant in abject ruins. He went outside of the one that he was told that would be the one who would bear the son of the promise. He slept with Hagar according to his wife's uh, advice. And remember, his wife was real happy about that, the result, right? 
No, she beat Hagar and kicked her out. And Abram approved of it. Now listen, it's really important that we not forget, what if Ishmael was supposed to be the son of the promise? He just exiled him into the wilderness to die. So how many ways could Abram get it wrong? And then God shows up, as he so often did with Abram, and he says these words, I am the Lord your God. Walk before me and you be blameless. He changed Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. And he renewed his covenant with him, or he re, uh, just, just said it again, because Abram had forgotten. And he used Abraham to be exactly what he said he would be, regardless of the way in which Abram had left the covenant in ruins. In the same way, these folks had fled. They'd been told, I will rise again in three days. But their fear, their concern for their own flesh caused them to run, wouldn't you? Don't you? Don't we all? And so they ran and they were scared and they thought, oh no, he's here. What's he going to say to us? They doubted his grace and his goodness. They thought that judgment was about to fall upon them. Another commentator thinks that that is exactly what they were thinking, R.T. France, and you may have seen this in the letter that was sent out for communion. He says this, he says, the last time these 11 disciples had seen Jesus was as they ran away from him in Gethsemane. So what sort of reception could they now expect from the master they had deserted? The conflicting instincts to worship the risen Jesus and to avoid a potentially embarrassing encounter make very human sense in this context. Let me, let me illustrate how we do it, right? We talk about which way do you run. That's something I say often. I think it's an important thing for us to remember. When you mess up, which direction do you run? Do you go boldly before the throne of grace to receive what you need in a time of trouble, or do you hightail it out of town? So often when we make mistakes, we take off. We cut ourselves off from community. We cut ourselves off from scripture. We cut ourselves off from worship, we do everything that's the exact opposite of what Christ died for us to be able to do when he knew we would mess up yet again. So we run too. And beautifully, again and again, Jesus pursues us to the uttermost, doesn't he? Again and again, he shows up and he says, why are you way out here? What are you hiding from? I am the Lord your God. Walk before me and be blameless. And so these, these folks were just like us. They were afraid. Do you ever doubt God's love for you? Do you ever fear that your mistakes have become more definitive of who you are than what he has pronounced over you? Do, do you know that you have a new name? If you are in union with Christ, you have too been renamed. And that name is something when spoken, you will understand and it will be beautiful. It won't have any of the baggage associated with your name, any of the baggage associated with your memory, any of the baggage associated with any of those things. You will at long last be a glorified new creation. There is nothing for you to fear. Now, let me be careful did I just say we can sin and be licentious and act a straight fool? No, no. In fact, what I just said was, no, 
you of all, us of all people ought to be the most glorious reflections of worship and obedience the world has ever seen because we've been empowered. We of all people ought to care most about our character and how we live because it matters, it has an impact upon the glory of the Lord. We of all people know that the Father disciplines whom he loves. Why would a father need to discipline if his children didn't sometimes find themselves disobedient? So what I hopefully have given us, what Jesus has given us, what God the Father has given us, what the Spirit empowers us to do is to actually be obedient. Not perfect, but glorious. So, what is determining your obedience? What, what defines how you do what you do? What has the biggest impact upon your worship? Those, the answer to those questions are critical because those are the things that are defining and shaping you. If you would turn back to the text, we'll look at 18 and then the first part of 19. <clears throat> Jesus then speaks, he says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. What did he just say? What did Jesus just say? All authority has been given to me in both heaven and earth. What did he just declare? Universal divine sovereignty. He just said, I am. What does that mean? I am God. I am the Lord. And because I am the Lord and I am good and I have died for you and I have risen for you so that you could walk in newness of life, therefore, go. Not because of anything else. There's no other way to do the Great Commission. There's no other power. There's no other Herculean effort or strength. We will wear ourselves out unto exhaustion and despair if we try to do this under any other lordship. If we don't continue to push ourselves to remember that God is creator of all things, the creator-creature distinction that we talk about so often, if we don't seek to remember in devotion and worship that, that Jesus is Lord, there is no great commission. There is nothing for you to do. That must be first. That's why it says, therefore, because I am Lord, because of all that I am. And this is why it's so critical for us as God's people to study and know the person and work of Christ, to know that God is Father, to know that we are not being saved from God, we're being saved to him. Remember, who sent Jesus? Who? God did. Why? Because he's tired of messing with this place. He tried to flood it once, and that didn't really wipe him out like it was supposed to. So he sent somebody with a sword in their fist that can really do some damage, right? No. Why did he send Jesus? To retrieve what was his, sons and daughters. Jesus was sent on mission because God is a missional God to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant that every tongue, tribe, and nation would be represented. The reason that Jesus is Lord is to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. 
This is why I can say the heart of Reformed theology ought to be the Abrahamic covenant. We ought to be the most missional missionary people on the planet. Guess who's least? Us. Do you know how many Presbyterian Reformed churches there are in Bosnia? Since we heard from Josh last week. I can, let me help you out. I can count them on no hand because there are none. None. In the middle of a country that is war-torn and predominantly Muslim and broken, we can't find ourselves there. That's just one example. I'm sorry that we could name far too many more. But what we know about what's true about God is sovereignty and his love for us and the Abrahamic covenant. We of all people ought to be the most gone, have gone, and we're not. But that's not the end of the story. I didn't just pronounce judgment at all. In fact, the story continues. The Lord tarries because he is good. He says, they'll get it. They'll get it. Which is why he's not yet come. Second Peter 3, because he wants the family to grow larger. Let's get it, church. Let's understand rightly what our theology ought to drive us to do. Jesus just gave us a whole bunch of theology in one single verse. I have been given authority over all of heaven and all of earth. I am the Davidic king who has come. I am the son of David. I am the fulfiller of the covenant, the covenant keeper, and I am the one who has been sent by the covenant maker. And therefore, you can go. Now, listen to what John Calvin says about this. Before relating that the office of teaching was committed to the disciples, did you hear what he said? Before he says anything about what they're supposed to do. Matthew says that Christ began speaking of his power. And not without reason, for no ordinary authority would here have been enough, but sovereign and truly divine government ought to be possessed by him who commands them to promise eternal life in his name, to reduce the whole world under his sway, and to publish a doctrine which subdues all pride and lays prostrate the whole of the human race. And by this preface, Christ now not only encouraged the apostles to, to full confidence in the discharge of their office, but confirmed the faith of his gospel in all ages. See, it is because of who Christ is and what he accomplished that we have the ability to go, that we have anything to share with anybody. Praise be to God that Christ is who he says that he is. Praise God that he is Lord. Praise God that all authority has been given to him. You might recognize that God oftentimes in the Old Testament used to say the same exact thing. Before he would get into some huge discussion about your, uh, what you're supposed to do, for those of you who don't really like reading Deuteronomy and some of those Old Testament books, this is where this stuff is, by the way. He will open up by saying, I am the Lord God of heaven and earth. So before I tell you to do anything, remember who it is that's telling you and who has the ability and the gifts to be able to help you do it. I'm not asking you to do it in your own strength because I've already seen what your own strength produces. Genesis 3. We stand in the ruins of that already. I don't need more of your effort. What I'm calling you to is more of a recognition of who I am. 
so that you could worship and do this out of love because it's too hard otherwise. In fact, it's impossible otherwise. If you would, so, so what impact does Christ's sovereign divine rule and lordship have on your obedience? Does it matter to you at all? Does it have any sway on you at all that Christ is Lord? Well, it should. It really should. Let's turn back to the text and see in full what he is calling for us or commissioning us to then do. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, lo, to the end of the age. There's so much that we could unpack here and we don't have time to go through all of it, but let's look at a few things that are relevant to us. So Jesus says, based on my divine universal sovereignty, based on my son of Davidness, the perfect David who has come, now go and fulfill the Abrahamic covenant because I too am the son of Abraham. I too am the means by which you can bless and the nations will be blessed. I am the one who is father of all nations, the true Abraham. And he tells us there's one imperative in here and there's three things around that. The imperative is make disciples. You do that by going, you do that by baptizing, and you do that by teaching all that Jesus commanded. Now, let's deal with the go first. Some commentators like to say, well, this is, this is an as-you-go statement. So it's just as you go, there's no, you don't necessarily have to go anywhere in particular. I think that's probably too narrow, but it also is helpful to us because I do think there's an as-you-go element. And the reason I can say that is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. If you remember, this is where the greatest commandment shows up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and do what with your children? When you sit down, when you lay down, when you walk, put it on your doorpost, put it on your gatepost, put it everywhere that you can think that you love the Lord your God. And teach everybody you know, not just your children. See, the Great Commission is as much in Deuteronomy 6 as it is anywhere. So we know that it is an as-you-go element, but it is not exclusively an as-you-go element. Some people are called to go even further, as we saw last week with Josh Irby, who felt compelled and called to Bosnia of all places. Travis and Laura, who are compelled and called to Kenya. Brian and Mandy Stock, compelled and called to go to Southeast Asia. The Robertsons, compelled and called first to Mexico and now to Chile. Compelled and called the Mills as they live in Thailand. And over and over and over again. Those who are compelled and called to go to Haiti, one of the most beautiful vacation spots in all of the northern, no, it is not. So the going is a recognition that he did not set up his church for us to grab and come. Do you hear that? I know that my job seems to depend on nickels and noses. Not in this way, no it doesn't. I am utterly unconcerned with you guys grabbing a hold of people and telling them, you, listen, you gotta come hear this guy speak. Sometimes he says crazy stuff. It feels like we're going off the rails all the time. I'm pretty sure he's going to lose it one Sunday. It's going to be glorious. That dude's going to blow a head gasket. And you want to be there. 
No, you don't. And I'm not why anybody should come. That is cults of personality that is dangerous to you and to me. And it's devastating to the worship of Jesus Christ. That's why we say the entire service is what's important from call to worship to benediction. If all you do is listen to the sermon online or that's, you check out of everything else, you just listen to the sermon, it's like you walked into the middle of a movie and you don't know what's going on. Really. You will be far more effective not bringing anybody here. I have a theory that is utterly untheological, by the way. And since it's about Satan, it doesn't have to be theological. I think that hell is going to be visiting churches for an eternity. For those of you who've had to visit churches, I have a huge tender spot for you. It is a horrific event. It is horrible. I mean, it is. It's the weirdest thing in the world. Walk into this giant group of people who all already half know each other, and you get to be the new kid. And you got to kind of figure out what, what's going on here. Like, what are their practices? Because no two Presbyterian churches do it exactly the same now, do we? We've had the blessing of being told we're too contemporary and too traditional. I don't know where that leaves us. It's not about us. It's about Christ. And you will accomplish far, far, far more in sharing your broken cup with them and filled with its gracious contents than making them sit through this. Seriously. Because it's about relationship, isn't it? It really is about the making of disciples. Jesus gave you a great example. Jesus, how long did it take him to get uh, James, Peter, and John where he felt like he could turn them loose? How many years? Three. And he had to rise from the dead and ascend into heaven to get him to move. So what are you going to accomplish in fast fashion? You're not. Because you're not Jesus. It takes time to invest in and build in and see things cultivated. The making of disciples is not a technique. It's not a everything rhymes with E or everything F-A-I-T-H. I'm not opposed to those things in toto, but they are not. That's not it. If somebody cannot dine at your table, if somebody's not welcome in your home, if, if you don't care about who goes to lunch alone at work, if you don't care about those kind of things, nothing, nothing will reach them that way. No technique. So the going is both as you go and a specific command for some to go to specific places. And then it says, baptizing them. And it's a Trinitarian formula, formula which tells you that both the Spirit and Christ are on par with God. That all three names are pretty important in the economy of redemption. And the baptizing is just, just in the same way as circumcision was to mark them as part of the covenant community as entering into the discipleship process. Which is why it's so critical for us who do infant baptism and all of us who agree with that aspect of it, which I know not all of you do and that's okay. We'll dunk you whenever. <laughs> we, we, we are not prejudiced. Uh, it is important that we actually keep the, the, the vows that we make, right? It's crazy to me that, that we make all these vows about loving our children. And what's the one ministry that we have the hardest time finding volunteers for? Empty nesters ministry? Old folks ministry? No, no, no. They're, they're killing it. They're, out, they're lapping you guys. It's children's ministry. Woe be unto us. Now, let me say something good about y'all. 
May I compliment you for a moment and not go to your head? You guys have done an incredible job in the time that I've been here. It has been such a small burden. That's either because Whitney hides stuff from me, which I don't think she does, or you guys are, and we're not all the way there, by the way. We still have a couple of things open so that Whitney can be in here more often. So we're, we're close, but we're not all the way there. But you guys have done an amazing job of being faithful and showing up and loving our children well. Praise God. That is evidence of God's grace because most churches struggle and struggle and struggle and it makes no sense to me. I want to, so I think I've shared this wicked fantasy with you. I want to sneak into some church when they're doing an infant baptism and when they make the vows, jump up and scream, you brood of vipers, you lie. And then I'll have to take off running, obviously. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, the reason for that is because... Why, why would that be the one ministry that we struggle so much for? Why are they such a burden to us when they're such a gift? We, are we, are we pro-life? Well, then it ought to be reflected in the children's ministry and in the infants and toddlers. And you may be thinking, well, Cameron, I'd like to see when it's your turn. Well, one of them called me fat on the way in here, and I'm, <laughs> he did. He said, you've got a fat belly. Why? I said, well, I've been eating for 43 years, kid. You'll catch up. <laughs> so we're to go, we're to baptize. All of these things reflected in the Abrahamic covenant and we are to teach them all that Jesus commanded. Now you may be thinking, man, that's an awful lot. And it is, but it kind of comes down to two main things, doesn't it? We got to teach them how to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind which is not as simple as what it just sounded. And we've got to teach them to love their neighbor, which I think is probably even harder. Because their neighbor is far more inconsistent and dynamic sometimes than God is. And so teaching them those two things, you've got to really walk with people through that, right? And, and it also indicates that what Jesus taught is relevant from now to the end of the age, by the way. There is nothing that Jesus commanded that was abrogated by the passing of time. All of it still is relevant. Remember what he said, John 15, I don't like to hear it either. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Which ones? He doesn't say. The impression? All. Is that talking about perfection? No. How could you perfectly love your neighbor? How could you perfectly love your spouse? can't, your spouse being your nearest neighbor and all. We just don't do it, do we? But we are to try, we're to constantly return again and again to the mercy being new every morning. This is not about perfection. This is about loving well. So he calls us, go. As you go, and specifically where I call you to go, baptize, which is a covenant marker. You're, you're basically saying in, in the same way that Christ died and rose again, you're made clean. You're a new creation in Christ. What a beautiful thing that baptism is, reminding us that God is the covenant maker and the covenant keeper and that he's been at work in the life of either the child or the adult long before either knew what was going on. And so he also says we're to teach them all that he commanded Hebrews challenges us in this regard. Remember in Hebrews 5, when the author says, you all ought to be teachers by now. 
but you're so busy messing with each other that you're having to drink milk and you can't eat the right stuff, can't eat steak, and you're, you're basically crucifying Christ again to an open shame with your nonsense. Would that we recognized that we have great opportunity to, to, to teach and to love and to engage. So often as a pastor, sometimes when people leave our church or they visit, one of the things they'll say is, there's just nothing for me to do there. And I turn and I sweep my hand at the world. I say, what do you mean? The kingdom's not large enough for you? You need me to gather a group of people and put my stamp of approval on you and your doctrine in order to be able to share Jesus with someone? Woe be unto you. You can gather people in your house. You can gather people at work. You can do anything you want to do. We are here to support you. This is why we're not a programmatic church. I know that some of you don't believe me on one side, that there really is true freedom for you to do what it is the Lord has called and gifted you to do, and you don't need my permission. I know you don't trust me. You're just saying, ah, I'm going to start something. That sucker's going to show up. I know it. <laughs> and on the other side, I know that you're not hearing me. You're thinking, yeah, that's until we get a building. We get a building, mm -hmm. we're going to have programs. Programs out the wazzle. Everybody's going to be satisfied, catered to, and taken care of. Because that's what church is supposed to do, right? Or you're just thinking, yeah, he's young. You know, he's like a 13-year-old Presbyterian. He'll grow up. He'll get it. We'll buy an organ and all kind of stuff. We're going to be fine. No, I hate to tell you, this ain't my first rodeo, and I didn't just come up with this stuff. And I'm not here to mind the store. I'm not here to build Christ's community's kingdom. I'm more concerned with the building of Christ's kingdom. And that means that so often things have to happen outside the bounds of this. And so you may say, well, what in the world holds us? Your membership vows. Read over them. If I find out you're teaching some crazy, goofy thing at your house about how Melchizedek is an alien or something odd, we have every bit of authority to demit you, sanction you, and discipline you. And you may say, well, I ain't got to show up for that. Well, fine, don't, but we're still going to do it. So it's your membership vows that hold you. I'm not worried about that stuff. I'd rather you be set free to do what it is the Lord has given you to do. I'm here to equip you, the saints. Anything you need, I will help you with. I will exhaust myself to help you do exactly what you've been equipped and called to do. And so, listen to what Mike Breen says. He's a blogger, so that doesn't make him a great authority, but this is a great quote. He says, a disciple is someone who with increased intentionality and passing time has a life and ministry that looks more and more like the life and ministry of Jesus. They increasingly have his heart and character and are able to do the types of things we see Jesus doing. Does that describe you? Because if it doesn't, it ought. And that needs to be the thing you work on. But I want to encourage you in some things. So what are some of the ways in which we as a church are fulfilling the Great Commission? And we, the staff, we really thought about this this week, and I want to highlight some of these things, but I want to be careful, because this isn't about you. It's about how God has been faithful and allowed us to do what some of these things are. 